Put your name on the map. Take part in one of Australia's most prestigious travel marketing awards and celebrate the best and brightest talents, teams, agencies and brands that have innovated, succeeded and set a new standard across the travel and tourism industry. Come and flex your work among the best and brightest in the travel and tourism industries. Final entries ends this Friday. You can enter at www.mumbrella.com.au forward slash travel awards. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmine, and today, lots to discuss once again in the media and marketing industry. So, we're going to try and fly through a couple of topics. You'll hear about radio ratings as the survey year hits its back half. What have we learned so far? Plus, Southern Cross Australia's financial sees a couple of rocky figures and the market reacts. Then we'll take a look at a couple of features from Mumbrella this week. And then you'll get a listen in how to write a LinkedIn post with as much cringe possible. Finally, Private Media's Chairman Eric Beecher and Crikey Editor-in-Chief Peter Frey join the podcast to discuss the Lachlan Murdoch papers published on the independent news site on Monday and why it is taking the fight to News Corp co-chairman Lachlan Murdoch as he prepares a defamation suit. Joining me today is journalist Kalila Welch. Hey, Kalila. Hey. And acting deputy editor Emma Shepard. Hey, Em. Great to see you both. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Sun is shining. Yeah, it started off a bit miserable this morning, but the sun's come out and there's nothing better, really. Nothing better. Any highlights from your week so far? My lunch. (laughs) Your lunch. My sandwich. Getting radio ratings out of the way is probably a highlight that was kind of creeping up for a while. It's always a bit stressful. So you're telling me that you don't relish ratings day eight times a year? Uh, Between you and me? No, I don't. And our hundreds of thousands of listeners. uh, Yeah, and our thousands (laughs) and thousands of subscribers. Well, that's probably a good place to start then. So why don't we do exactly what you want, Kalila, and get radio ratings out the way? Um, Thank God. uh, We haven't really discussed ratings so far this year a lot on this podcast. Um, This week on Tuesday, it was GFK Survey 5 for the year. Um, And sort of at this point, a few trends have kind of begun to appear with the market seemingly a lot less volatile than the past two years, which have sort of been defined by lockdowns for the sector. Um, Rather than give you a full run-through of the whole results, which you can kind of go and find yourself on the Mumbrella website, um, what we're going to do is, uh, what we might do is get you both and then maybe myself to suggest something that piques your interest this survey and then maybe after that one storyline that you've seen sort of developing this year. And why don't we kick things off with you here? Yeah, so looking at the results, uh, I saw a few trends that stood out to me this book. Uh, Nova did particularly well in Perth, Brisbane and Adelaide. And I really think that they're trying to uh, set themselves up as a national radio network I spoke to Nova's chief chief growth officer, Adam Johnson, uh, earlier this week, and he said he's really pushing the point that, you know, they have they are able to reach 6 million Australians every week. Um, and they grew almost double digits, up 9% with their DAB uh, reach. So I think um, there's going to be, uh, I have a feeling there's going to be some big news coming out of Nova in the coming weeks just around that national DAB concept 
uh, it, they're not really focusing on just single markets anymore. It's more about, you know, Australia and, and the national market as a whole. Turning up the feel good at a national level, hey? Absolutely. And another another one that was not such a positive note that I noticed was WSFM's result in Sydney. They uh, they had significant decline in, in audience share from overall drive and breakfast. I think a drive, Steve Fitton, uh, lost the biggest share in the market, uh, which was 2.3 percentage points. So something's going on there. So I'm not sure what ARN are going to do to fix that, but that seemed to really stand out this book. And Kalula, over to you. So we know that it hasn't been um, great for SCA in recent years, but um, in this survey, they've continued to kind of stabilise in their results and they've seen some further gains for the Fox down in Melbourne. Um, And, you know, Triple M has done fairly well in Sydney as well. Brisbane's hit network made significant gains. So they're kind of starting, um, I mean, as as we know over the year, they've done a little bit better than in the past. So... Um, this survey is another tick in the book for them, I guess. Um, on the other hand, I think looking um, as well at the past kind of year or so of results, um, someone who's not doing so well is the ABC. Um, kind of across the board, especially in this book, they've made some losses and the age reported um, that the audience, total audience for Melbourne's radio Melbourne ABC, sorry, the total audience for um, ABC Melbourne has halved compared to last year and their share has fallen from 12.4% to 7%, 7.1%, sorry. Um, and the, and this pattern kind of follows across the board as well um, with similar results in Brisbane where they've dropped three points total share since this time last year, since Survey 5 last year, and um, a significant drop just this book of 1.5 points in the breakfast time slot. Um, and again, in Sydney, they've they've gone from one 11.9% share down to only 8% share uh, with a similar 4.1% fall in the breakfast spot down to 9.9%, um, which is unfortunate for them because, you know, breakfast was something that they were uh, quite competitive in previously in the uh, market. And they've also um, just this book had a bit of a loss in Adelaide too, which up until this point had been a stronghold for the ABC. While they are still out ahead um, in overall share, they did lose 1.9 points, um, which is a disappointing loss for them, I'm sure. Um, And in both Breakfast and Drive, they lost 2.3 points respectively in those key time slots. Yeah, I think kind of building on that point, that was one of my takeaways from from this survey and kind of over a bit of time as well, I think there is a sort of maybe sense of returning to pre-COVID numbers for some of those uh, local stations. Um, reading uh, Tim Burroughs' newsletter this morning, he kind of pointed out that the overall demise of that Radio National show, which has been, I guess, for so long an agenda setter for, for I guess, politics in the country. It's, I think it's down to about a 2.6% share now, um, mm. Not whether or not that's related to the change in presenter from Fran Kelly to Patricia Carvalis is, I guess, a little bit irrelevant. But, I mean, it does seem as though some of those local stations, they still do have a, a fairly all right share. Um, interesting to note. The Adelaide market, which, as you mentioned there, has always been so strong. Um, they had a switch over. Ali Clark departed at the start of this year, and I believe now it's Stacey Lee and Nikolai Belhars. Um, 
interesting to note that that is the only market where uh, Nine Radio don't have presence in Talkback. Um, obviously, having Four BC Brisbane, Six PR in Perth, and then Melbourne, Sydney, Two GB, and Three AW, which are still pretty dominant. So interesting that the drop off that we've seen in Talkback that was so dominant in 2021 and 2020 hasn't really impacted um, those nine radio stations as much. Um, and in this in this book, I think M. Correct me if I'm wrong. Two GB gained share and the same was true in Perth and and Brisbane. Uh, with Brisbane also very interestingly having a new breakfast trio with Neil Breen moving to the drive slot and they've actually um, good on Nine Radio. They've introduced their first woman presenter into the breakfast slot. Um, <laughs> and we should give a special happy birthday to 2GB which turned 96 this week. Um um, I also wanted to mention a point you made earlier M, about WSFM. I think it's interesting that they did take a slight hit there because um, across lots of the other stations, some of that 80s and 90s, um, those, those 80s and 90s music-dominated stations are performing really well and kind of proving to be a continued hit for radio listeners. I guess radio listeners do skew a little bit older, um, but in particular in Melbourne, um, the Christian O'Connell Breakfast Show continues to be I guess a bit of a powerhouse in that morning slot and sort of separates itself in that second place between uh, 3AW and then I guess the the followers and then their newish um, drive show host Dave Higo Higgins is challenging even the top spot uh, of Tom Elliott at 3AW in the drive slot and then also Smooth FM I think uh, 9.6 up in Sydney around what they were last time and again 9.3 in Melbourne overall um, both proving to be pretty strong stayers there. Um, on another note, Southern Cross Asteria, which we mentioned earlier there, which runs the Triple M and Hit Networks, delivered its financials on Monday. Uh, the market didn't respond too well, but and were there any major details to come out of that one which may have, I guess, pointed towards why that might be? Yes, so I was trying to get some more insight into a tweet from AFR reporter Mark DiStefano uh, who claimed that, you know, SEA put out an absolute stinker, in his own words, of a financial result uh, with a net profit down 419% in a year to a $153 million loss uh, and said blames slower recovery out of COVID declining radio forecasts. I did some digging. I could not find anywhere where that number you know, correlates to that four hundred nineteen percent. You mean the four hundred nineteen percent? Yes, I, I can't see anywhere in the results where that you know correlates into an actual figure from their report, their financial report. You know, their revenue is down and expenses are up because of their high investment in listener. Uh, but yeah, look, the market didn't res- respond well to their their financial um, report this time around. Um, you know, SEA shares are actually trading on the ASX at the moment at $1.05, and that's gone down about 10.5% in the last three days. So, you know, and then also they had their CFO resign, Nick McKenney, um, just at the same time as releasing the financial results. So I really don't know what's happening there. But, you know, all in law wasn't wasn't the best result, but it wasn't. It's, it's still climbing since their results that they were getting last year. Regarding Mark's tweet, uh, after speaking to the CFO, Nick McKenney, he said uh, he's actually comparing their net profit after tax in FY21 of $48.1 million 
to the net loss after tax this year of $152 million, which creates a 419% difference. He said this was all caused by the non-cash impairment of their intangible assets, so radio licences, tax-affected charge of $179 million, with the main reason for the impairment being the increase in discount rates globally as well. Uh, and then looking ahead, we have a big one landing tomorrow with Nine Entertainment's first full financial year results under CEO Mike Sneesby. Uh, and alongside that, we'll get Stan's results. So if there's a couple of good talking points, we might touch on that next week. Up next, workplaces dealing with domestic violence and AI LinkedIn posting. <laughs> Our very own Kalila Welch wrote a feature this week speaking to Thrive PR founder Lilani Abels and Initiatives Mel Fine about progressive leave policies and more specific, more specifically domestic abuse leave as we wait the result of a governmental 10-day leave bill. Kalila, for those who didn't catch up on that feature, would you mind by giving us a little bit of a rundown over it and what both Mel and Lilani had to say? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm off the back of um, the Albanese government introducing that bill to federal parliament last month. Um, I sat down with Leilani and Mel to discuss um, both of their organisations' own work in the area. Um, Both Thrive PR and Initiative have introduced, um, long before this bill, have introduced their own domestic violence leave policies of 10 days for staff. And um, both of those arrangements are, you know, no questions asked type of um, deal where they're, you know, making making the effort to make sure that their staff feel um, safe and supported in these situations. And that's, um, you know, speaking to Leilani, she talked a lot about how Thrive is a, is a female-dominated and obviously a female-led agency. So it was really important for them to introduce that policy, which came into play for them in early 2020 um, off the back of a, a similar piece of legislation that was rolled out in New Zealand. They have a New Zealand office and they made the decision at that time to also roll it out um, locally in Australia as they didn't see a point, you know, operating with, with two different kind of systems, especially given the importance of the issue and the difference that um, leave can make for victims and survivors. Um, I think one of um, – it's something as well, it's a policy as well that, you know, we're really lucky in this industry that um, typically we do stay ahead of the curve on issues like this, Holcos, Havas and Publicis. Um, have similar policies um, for domestic violence leave as well. But um, something that I kind of got from the feature and from my conversations with Leilani and with Mel was that it is something that we really need to not take for granted, I think, in the industry. And and I think for organisations that haven't already kind of started to make a move in this area, um, hopefully the bill, um, which, you know, we hope gets approved, will... I mean, they'll be forced to introduce policies, but hopefully they'll also look internally um, in terms of culture and in terms of setting up pieces around the periphery of a policy like this that's going to make staff um, that are experiencing, you know, domestic violence feel seen and safe and supported. And uh, something that we kind of really fleshed out was how important it is to have that supporting culture piece and to have policies and um 
you know, the, the different various supports that are available to staffs really visible, um, having people that are trained in, um, you know, providing support to victim survivors, um, you know, not only on matters of, of domestic abuse but um, in other kind of issues as well, like other personal issues as well. So I think there's a lot of work to be done but um, it seems to be that the industry is moving in the right direction and hopefully will continue to do more work. Was was there any sense you got from speaking to both of them? I know, you know, this this particular policy is a little bit different, but we do see, I guess, maybe it, as something we've talked about before, is a lot of it comes as part of a hiring push over mm-hmm. the last year and a half or two when there has been a talent shortage. Is there sort of an acceptance in some some places, I guess, that some of this stuff has got to a point where it is a bare necessity and you sort of shouldn't be, I guess, looking to use it as a hiring pool. Um, And I guess on a second part there, do they acknowledge that maybe this isn't going to make, like be the decision maker for people to get hired? It sort of should be an expectation at this point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Both of them um, really kind of, they really pushed the point that this wasn't for either of their organisations anything to do with staff retention or attraction. Um, It's a lot bigger issue than that. Obviously, it does have benefits when you are, you know, looking at being the first organisation or one of the first organisations to implement a policy like this or, you know, other policies. We looked at um, different leave policies for, um, you know, maternal and paternal leave and IVF treatment, miscarriage leave. Um, All of these kind of things obviously can make a difference, but, you know, they shouldn't be ideated on the basis of being a pool for staff. Yeah, Mel specifically also stated that she felt that a policy like this now, you know, um, it's really she felt that some organisations haven't even got it together to have, you know, proper and substantial parental leave policies. So, you know, um, her main point was that organisations really need to to look at getting the basics um, together before they can move on to implementing more kind of progressive policies. But, you know, at the same time, it is it is really an urgent policy that people should be looking at. So I wouldn't discourage anybody from implementing it as quickly as possible if they, um, you know, can get ahead um, of the bill itself. But, yeah, it, it is a matter of there There are some really big differences across the industry where we have some organisations that are so far ahead that they could consider this table stakes, um, whereas others are just, you know, fallen behind to the point where they're going to have to do a lot of work to catch up, I think. One final thing to add, and we were having quite a bit of fun yesterday working with this LinkedIn post generator, which essentially allows you to put in two prompts and it will um, develop a uh, a LinkedIn post when you can control the cringe factor. Now, we know this is a very prominent thing, which we everyone sees on LinkedIn, especially in this industry. There's a high use of LinkedIn. So um, I th- think what might be fun is if we do a viral LinkedIn post live on air. What we might do here is... I ask you two questions. What did you do today? Kalila, you can give us the prompt for what did you do today? I had a coffee. And some inspirational advice from M. Just never give up. And, of course, we're going to turn the cringe level up high. And here we have it. So it starts off with huge announcement and then a couple of party emojis. 
I'm proud to let y'all know that I did have my coffee. Oh yeah, my dear LinkedIn fans, I did have my coffee today. I highly recommend any young professional to have a coffee as soon as possible. And you don't have to do it alone. You can do it with your manager, your partner, your grandfather, anyone you'd like. My next stop, I'm, I'm never going to give up, love heart face. So there you go. That probably is something that we wow. could read on a LinkedIn feed. It's, it's so, not super far-fetched. No. It's not super <laughs> far-fetched. <laughs> anyway, probably a good point to move on because uh, next up, um, coming up after the break, I'll be chatting to Eric Beecher and Peter Frey regarding everything they've been in the news for this and last week. Just a quick note from me with my producer hat on here. The uh, platform we usually use to record these interviews was not working or giving us some technical issues. So I uh, apologize for the audio quality here in particular coming from my own microphone, but otherwise enjoy the interview. I'm Chairman Eric Beecher and Crikey Editor-in-Chief and Managing Editor of Private Media, Peter Frey. Welcome to you both. Hi, Carl. How are you? All right, Callum. Doing brilliantly, and thanks for joining me. Um, so for those who follow this sector closely, as all Mumbrella cast listeners do, you would have seen the headlines this week uh, involving yourselves and Lachlan Murdoch, co-chairman of News Corp and executive chairman of Fox uh, Corp. Can you start by running us through maybe, Peter, the process of how this writ kind of came to be um, which has now been filed in the federal court by Lachlan Murdoch, and I guess the process of you essentially goading him into doing so. Oh, goading is an interesting <laughs> word, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, uh, so on 29th of June, uh, Bernard Keane, our political editor, wrote a piece which looked at the role of uh, Fox, Trump, and and of commentators on Fox uh, in relation to the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., yeah, the headline referenced Murdoch, the word Murdoch, and two or three parts from the bottom, it talked about the Murdochs. At no point did it actually even say the words Lachlan Murdoch. But nonetheless, the day after, um, Lachlan Murdoch's lawyer in Sydney, a guy called John Churchill, took exception to this article and sent us a, a concerns notice with a very, very long list of uh, imputations that uh, defamatory, he alleged that defamatory imputations um, that, that stretched to, I think, 14 or something, uh, which was pretty good work. So that's like um, seven imputations for every time we mentioned the word Murdoch. Um, so um, which he basically and demanded we take the story down and demanded we take all the socials down and one thing or another and um, carried on like a bit of a pork chop, basically. And so we, uh, at the first instance, we were advised to take it down and seek, you know, to sort of enter discussions with John Churchill, Lachlan's lawyer, which we did. Um, but then, uh, and we offered some, you know, we sent a letter back in, as you do, and then ensued a series of letters, which are all now published on for free on the Crikey website, so people can make up their own mind. But essentially, not long, not long after, we became quite apparent to us that what um, Locke and Murdoch's lawyers were seeking to do was to do everything uh, that he could possibly could, could do to disassociate 
his clients from the actions of Fox and Trump and the January 6th insurrection. So we decided to put the uh, article back up uh, as uh, in, in essence in the name of free speech because um, as I'm sure uh, we can discuss at length, surely this is a grown up place, this country where we're enabled, we are able to have a open and honest discussion about the role of a TV network, any TV network, inciting you know public insurrection and that's basically what we're trying to do and anyway to cut to the chase uh this earlier this week we put advertisements in the new york times and the camera times after nearly uh, two months of back and forth with Lockheed murdoch's lawyers saying hey you know put up or shut up sue us or not and now he has yeah uh eric you've you've had it run-ins with Lachlan Murdoch in particular previously and they've kind of gone a little bit differently. What do you think it was maybe that was different about this time around? Well, I don't really know. I mean, what we did was publish a story that, as Peter said, didn't mention his name. Uh, It mentioned uh, the word Murdoch in the headline and the word Murdoch's in one sentence. That was it. Um, And the rest of the story was a legitimate commentary on uh, what was going on in U.S. politics, which is of global interest, and Fox's Fox News's role in that is also of global interest. The story we published uh, compared to hundreds, if not thousands, of similar stories in the U.S. was actually quite a tame version. So I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, this morning on uh, Radio National, former Prime Minister um, Malcolm Turnbull was pretty scathing in his, um, I guess, assessment of the situation, stating that he was surprised. And, you know, there's a, a bunch of quotes which we've we've got on the website, which Turnbull went in for. But he was actually probably a bit more strong, um, strong worded in his approach. Um, why do you think it is that then Lachlan's not gone after anyone else, Eric? Well, in the US, for example, he can't sue for defamation uh, over this kind of thing because there's a public figure test and he's a public figure. Uh, If he could, there would have been hundreds of writs issued. So what he does is he does it in Australia, where Fox News doesn't even operate, uh, to a very small independent news operator. uh, And he's a very big news operator. Um, I don't know. Just try and figure it out. It was very hard for us to be inside the mind of Lachlan Murdoch. Um, I mean, you asked before why, why us, why now? Um, I, I would make, not saying this is the answer, but I would make the observation that uh, Murdoch is facing, Fox News and Murdoch are facing a rather large case in the United States in relation to the voting machines companies, Smartmatic and Dominion. Dominion essentially saying the spreading of the big lie, which in part involved uh, people like Rudy Giuliani saying that these machines were set up to steal the election for um, from Trump, basically ruined their business, and they're suing Fox to the tune of $1.6 billion. Now, that's playing out in um, a court in Delaware, uh, and uh, it's worth the, worthwhile noting that um, lawyers for Fox are trying to keep the words Lachlan Murdoch out of that too. So maybe this, maybe there's, maybe that's just a coincidence. Uh, maybe not. You, you, in a in a joint statement from you both today, um, 
you wrote, we welcome the chance to test what an honest, open public debate actually means for free speech in Australia. Um, do you think, I mean, is this part of it is kind of using yourselves as a, I guess, a spear to test those laws? I mean, how much does it come down to Fox and Murdoch and then, um, I guess, those laws on the other side of it? Well, we're not setting out to test the laws as such. We're set, simply setting out to do what we're uh, mandated to do, which is to do yep. journalism, to do public interest journalism. But it is an interesting point because Australia's defamation laws have been revised recently. And uh, this is, if this goes to court, this will test those new laws. And it's it's ironic in some ways and interesting. But if hypothetically Lachlan Murdoch won this case, we don't believe he will, but if he did win this case, he would actually establish a precedent that he as a publisher, the biggest commercial publisher in Australia, uh, would then have to operate under and that would make life much more difficult for his editors and journalists. So <laughs> it, it does seem rather ironic. Hey, you mentioned those ads that you purchased um, just before. Uh, what was the sort of, um, I guess, thought behind going on that approach and the, the, the how did that idea come about in terms of you know, going into, I guess, the biggest market in the world and purchasing a, a full page ad. So, you know, one of the ways legal cases work in this country is kind of like a battle of attrition. So we had exchanged, you know, four sets of letters. Again, they're all published on the website between us, and our lawyers and Lock and Murdoch's lawyers. And it was quite clearly this was going nowhere, that we were going to be kind of living with this threat this threat that essentially, you know, potentially anyway, has a chilling effect. And living with this threat for, oh, no, it was sort of like a never-ending sort of saga. So we decided that um, how do you bring this to a head? And one of the ways to bring it to the head was the pretty interesting idea of uh, putting in ads in the New York Times and the Canberra Times, inviting him to sue us. And certainly that's had the desired effect. Yeah. Is there, I guess, any hint at how much it costs to buy a full-page ad in uh, the New York Times? It was actually a quarter page. Oh, right. <laughs> I didn't get my hands on a copy myself. Uh, but, I it's just still, picture. but it's still expensive. It's still expensive. <laughs> it's, it's several times more than a full page in the comparable um, newspaper in Australia. And... Uh, Eric, on that on that point there, locally you went with the, the Canberra Times. What was the reasoning behind that choice? And were, I guess were there considerations in maybe going to a newspaper with maybe a little larger print circulation? Certainly there was a consideration, but the um, nine papers, Age, Sydney Morning Herald and Financial Review knocked us back and they wouldn't run our ad. So we went to the Canberra Times. Oh, really? Well, what, what was the – did they give a reason for – um, I guess not running that ad when you went to them? Well, we've had two two explanations. One is we are, the Crikey is a competitor as a subscription news business to the City Morning Herald and The Age, which is lovely to for them to acknowledge that. And therefore they wouldn't run uh, our ad because, you know, we'd be stealing thousands of subscribers from the from the City Morning Herald and The Age. Uh, the yes. other, the other is that they didn't want to upset um, Lachlan Murdoch or the Murdochs. And uh, having, you know, there is an element I think of 
Well, both are plausible as far as I'm concerned, but I, I, it depends somewhat on who we spoke to. So I, you know, it, I don't know, Eric, do you want to add more to that? Well, I'd just say both of those reasons uh, don't necessarily sit comfortably with the words under the mastheads of those newspapers, independent always. Yeah. There must be a hidden bracket in there, except when it concerns Lachlan Murdoch, close bracket. So, Peter, going from here, what do you sort of see as the best and worst case scenario as how this could play out? As, and have, has, has that even been a thought? Oh, yeah, well, you don't go into these things without thinking about what might happen. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, look, what's what's the best case scenario? Well, we win the case and we make a point. Uh, we stand yeah. up for uh, press freedom, freedom of speech. Um, if, if you, as you alluded to a bit earlier, um, we may end up testing these new defamation laws. Um, we may do all sorts of things along the way. That's the best case scenario. I mean, uh, the worst case scenario is, um, well, I guess we lose the case. And, you know, the freedom of speech argument in this country becomes even more dimmed than it actually is. Because if there is, going back to the whole point here, is that there is no reason why we shouldn't be able to debate matters of public importance, such as the role of Fox News in inciting the January 6th riot. There's absolutely no reason for it. And this, yeah. is, this is what we're fighting about. And I guess on uh, on the other side of it, um, Murdoch's camp has kind of leveled the claim that you've sort of done this for subscribers. Um, surely that can be a benefit at some point for a, for a company that is kind of um, subscriber focused. Well, I thought it was an interesting comment to make by uh, a, a publishing organisation that isn't exactly renowned for not being commercial. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, I mean. You know, some people may wish to subscribe to Crikey to support us and good on them for doing it. I mean, we, we don't make any secret of what our business model is for Crikey. Um, but it's a very cynical thing uh, to say, and it's disappointing that some media has repeat, repeated it without really questioning it, that you're all we're doing it for is some sort of cynical drive to get subscribers. Um, anyone who knows Crikey and has read Crikey over these last you know 20 odd years will know what Crikey stands for. And we'll know that Crikey has always sought to take on, you know, big issues and big people and people of influence. And and over the years, Crikey has been, you know, found itself in legal legal strife because of it. So it's a highly cynical thing to suggest uh, that we're just doing it for the su subscribers. But if people want to subscribe, Crikey.com.au will welcome you with open arms. And Peter, what's the, um, I guess, the response been in terms of from your paying subscribers already and then from the, the wider, uh, I guess, market in Australia from consumers and from also commentators? Oh, I would thought overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, we've, we've got uh, a lot of messages of support. I've received lots. I'm sure Eric has. I'm sure Will Hayward, our CEO, has. CEO has. Um, uh, letters are running hot, um, social is running hot. Yeah, so it's uh, overall been a very positive thing. I think we've tapped into a pretty deep scene of concern about the influence of uh, Murdoch media in this country, just as Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull have been in the past. 
Um, we, we obviously, as we mentioned before, you had the support of um, the former Prime Minister Turnbull this morning. Has there been any other, I guess, have you had any other approaches of maybe prominent people that have said, how can I help maybe in, from an advisory perspective or anything along those lines? Maybe put that one to you, Eric. Look, we, as Peter said, we're getting a lot of support, uh, particularly privately from a whole lot of uh, well-known uh, and significant figures. And, and the reason is, I think, is that we all know we're doing the right thing you know, we, we have a moral compass in our business and we, we're we standing up to, uh, you know, a very, very large global media organisation that also dominates this country. And all we're saying is there should be a place for independent public interest journalism. There are so few of us, uh, one or two, we're one of them. And the idea that we can't uh, publish legitimate uh, news and analysis on uh, topical issues uh, and and not be sued just seems crazy. And then just on a final point, it'd be interesting to kind of get your thoughts on outside of this case specifically where this goes next. Do you think, I mean, it has had global coverage, as we mentioned, and it's from the BBC and, and beyond that, Axios in the US. Where do you sort of see this going and what do you sort of, I guess, maybe think News Corp's as an organisation or Fox Corp's response might be? Well, I, I'll have a first go at that. I mean, it's intriguing that we this story hasn't, as far as we can see, as far as I can see, hasn't been covered in News Corp uh, newspapers or websites here, uh, which I guess only goes to serve to illustrate the point of the control that the Murdochs have over what people read and hear in this place. Um, <clears throat> Who knows, really, Kel? I mean, I think we will get prepped up. We will get ready to fight the case. There, there it, it'll be lawyers at 10 paces now for some time. Um, we won't stop reporting what we, you know, I, you would have seen today's crikey. Today's crikey subject line was, we will not be silenced, and we won't be silenced. So um, this probably has a little way to run yet. Hard to predict how it will end. It's, it, it's, there is a lot of interest in the United States and elsewhere about it, in part, I think, because of the, the Dominion case I mentioned, in part because of the links between Fox News and Trump, etc. So it is a global, it's a story of global importance. Um, as Malcolm Turnbull said today, maybe they've made a colossal error of judgment. Any final words, Eric? Well, um, in one of the pieces I wrote this week uh, about this issue in Crikey, I was just quoting um, Lachlan Murdoch's comments. Uh, he gave the 2014 Keith Murdoch oration at the State Library of Victoria, and he said that censorship should be resisted in all its insidious forms. We should be vigilant of the gradual erosion of our freedom to know to be informed and make reasoned decisions in our society and in our democracy. We must all take notice and, like Sir Keith, have the courage to act when those freedoms are threatened. Fine words. Fine I think words. I'll, I think I'll leave those uh, those comments to speak for themselves. Well, I appreciate uh, you both joining me today. Um, thanks a lot for your time. No problem. Anytime. And that is it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Make sure you're subscribing to us on whatever podcast platform you prefer to use and jump on mumbrella.com.au to check 
for more content and updates. Kalila, Emma, thank you very much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. See you next week. <laughs>